picture after that showed an upper room in a tall building in which a beautiful girl was hanging by her neck from a beam, having apparently taken her own life. The words said, love was her sea, her sky. In such excess, love, meeting with its like, breeds wantonness. Say not our troubles all from wrong side came. For their beginning, Ning must take the blame. I mean, it says uh, the picture that followed was of a bow with a citron hanging from it, followed by what looked like the words of the song. Citron here just being uh, a citrus fruit of some variety. And it's a sort of strange juxtaposition of two different things because the bow, obviously, is a symbol of kind of martial prowess, war, uh, strength, violence, I suppose. And a citrus fruit is. Well, I don't know what it represents, but something very, uh, very distinct from that, surely. I mean, um, I guess kind of life, you know, a time of peace, perhaps. Right. There might be something more concrete trying to be, you know, alluded to there. I'd have to review the Hawks um, appendix. He probably has a theory or two. I, I want to read the, the poem and talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So the poem reads, You shall, when 20 years in life's hard school are done, in pomegranate time yeah. to palace halls ascend. Lo, three springs could never with your first spring compare. When hare meets tiger, your great dream shall end. And so it, as for the poem, there's some indication that some of the more obvious references, you know, we know that the four, um, the four daughters are all named after spring, right? And so the idea is the three springs with your first spring, she's the oldest daughter. So she's the first spring. And so the idea is, in some sense, the other daughters can never compare with her. And yet, you yeah, know, right. when hair meets tiger, your great dream, which I'm interpreting as your life, uh, shall end. Mm. And so hair meets tiger is probably a, a reference to um, kind of the astronomical, um, the calendar system. It's again, it's forecasting her, her end. But what I thought was kind of interesting here was, so this idea of the great dream, I wanted to see what kind of references there were in the literary tradition to great dreams. Uh, and, and the earliest reference is, is of course, to the great philosopher of dreams. Um, it's in the second chapter of the Zhuangzi. It's in a very kind of iconic uh, passage that I wanted to, um, I wanted to read now, not simply because I think it'll enrich this passage, but I also think that um, there's a character in this passage that's referenced whose fate is parallel in some in some senses to... So what we know about Yuan Chun, she's the one who's going to become an imperial concubine. 
And so even though she's already at this, okay. um, a very elevated social standing, she's going to go up even higher, significantly so, as a consequence of this position slash uh, marriage arrangement. And so we see in this passage from the Drongza a similar kind of relativity, a similar kind of a jump in status. I'm going to read out from the Drongza. So we're going back in time, almost, you know, 2,000, more than 2,000 years. The Drongza reads, this is the A.C. Graham translation. How do I know that to take pleasure in life is not a delusion? How do I know that he who hates death is not an exile since childhood, who has forgotten his way home? Lady Lee was a daughter of the frontier guard at Ai. When the kingdom of Jin first took her, the tears stained her dress. But only when she came to the palace and shared the king's square couch and ate the flesh of hay-fed and grain-fed beasts did she begin to re regret her tears. How do I know that the dead do not regret that they ever had the urge to life? Who banquets in a dream at dawn, wails and weeps. Who wails and weeps at a dream at dawn, goes out to hunt. While we dream, we do not know that we are dreaming. And in the middle of the dream, interpret a dream within it. Not until we wake do we know that we were dreaming. Only at the ultimate awakening shall we know that this is the ultimate dream. And that's the, the Da Meng. That's, that's the same expression yeah. that, that kind of connected these passages. Uh, right, right, right. And, and so we see Lady Lee is also, she starts out as the daughter of, the, of a frontier guard, a fairly lowly position. She's at first, she doesn't want to leave home. But eventually, the new experience, you know, like changes her mind. And so she has a reevaluation of her entire value system. And so I, I think maybe we'll see the same, the same thing happen to Yuan Chun, but maybe it's not the same message. Maybe there, there's a kind of an implicit criticism of, um, of this original dynamic. It's, all, it's also interesting here that we see, again, this, um, this is a reference to dreams within dreams, or even the interpretation of dreams within dreams. And so we have this great dream novel, and here we have the dream within the novel, and we're interpreting it, and, e and even the dreamer himself is trying to interpret, you know, what, what are these signs that I'm seeing? There does seem to be a kind of a resonance between these texts that I, I wanted to highlight here. I think it's a pretty interesting point, because the, the great dream, the big dream, I do agree with your interpretation, but there's often euphemistic terms used for all sorts of different things, particularly stuff that is important or perhaps difficult to talk about. And it is, you know, it's very worth recognizing those uh, and pointing them out. You also, you know, have the, uh, the, the great death and the small death, all right? And so this yeah. dream has a little bit of both. So maybe that's also kind of um, something that's happening here. I think we should maybe skip ahead because we can go on forever and go through all these dreams and we... Yeah, I think we should maybe talk a little bit about what do you think? Should we do um, uh, Wang Shifeng, Feng Lazi, Peppercorn Feng, Peppercorn Feng, who we were introduced to briefly in chapter three, yeah. I think. As a that kind sounds of, right. Um, that sounds right. Uh, as a as a great whirlwind of activity, <laughs> um, she is one of the women of the Jia clan by marriage, and I think she's rather well liked by a lot of people because she's very energetic and caring. Mm -hmm. Her picture is a little bit more straightforward, is it not? Her picture is basically of an iceberg with a hen phoenix perched on top of it. Feng, of course, being the word for phoenix. This phoenix in a bad time came. All praise to her great ability. Two makes my riddle with a man in a tree. Returning south in tears, she met calamity. Here's again, Hawks is kind of, he, he really likes to preserve the rhyme. I, I found this one of the most difficult poems to to make sense of, particularly that third line. 
two makes my riddle with the man in the tree. In Chinese, it's uh, so one, and then the word from or following, two, and then this word ling, which is to order, make someone do something, mm. uh, then the word for three, then the word for person, and then the word for wood, uh, or maybe tree, is, um, I, I mean, it's almost like nonsense to me. I, I just don't fully understand right, what I have to right. say. But it almost heightens, again, when you have a dream, there's going to be stuff like this in it. The very fact that it's kind of incomprehensible, yeah. uh, it really lends it, yeah, a kind of a Lynchian, um, you sense a depth there precisely in your lack of comprehension. So maybe we don't have to fully explain this. Let's just kind of let it wash over us and we'll think about it. Yeah. There's also some indications that throughout this whole chapter, again, this novel was not properly finished uh, or even properly edited. And so there's all kinds of inconsistencies where events seem to be referenced that don't actually occur, that are only um, alluded to in notes or in, in letters or in commentary written at the time. And, and again, I think this, this imperfection, this incompleteness actually adds to the story in a weird way because you feel the yeah. material. If the author is unable to uh, kind of um, fully uh, grasp the material, it, it can be an indication that you're, you're really dealing with something that is uh, immense and complex into being uh, real and you know mysterious and worthy of review and rereading as it were um <clears throat> and so I'm, I'm i'm trying to accept the uh the chaos i guess yeah yeah be at peace with it <laughs> um I, I really think we need to like kind of skip ahead we're gonna skip a, a number of these poems but we're gonna in, in future episodes i promise I, I think we'll try to hit on all of them in some capacity so, so one other poem that i think uh it's worth touching on is the the final one we see which is probably the most stark uh, of all of them in terms of its imagery. So the picture which accompanies the poem, uh, Hawke says, the picture after that showed an upper room in a tall building in which a beautiful girl was hanging by her neck from a beam, having apparently taken her own life. The words said, love was her sea, her sky. In such excess, love meeting with its like breeds wantonness. Say not our troubles all from wrong side came. For their beginning, Ning must take the blame. So yeah, so this is one of the, the definitely one of the, the, the kind of darkest uh, images in the, in the register that he's reading, um, where it's not simply that terrible things are alluded to, but they're actually clearly depicted. And I think the suggestion is that this is about Xian uh, Shi, the the member of the Jia clan who offered her bedroom to Bao Yu and who, you know, the, the place where he's sleeping right now as he has this dream is her bedroom. One thing that's kind of interesting is I, I can recall reading in, in Hawke's notes that um, because uh, Cao Xueqian was originally from, uh, he was not Northern Chinese, you know, he's from Southern China, uh, he had quite a sort of non-standard accent, I suppose. Uh, apparently, people noted that the words qin ending in n and qing ending in ng, he tended to either confuse them or just conflate the two as one. And that's kind of interesting because the character in question is called qin shi. And the word for love, which is repeated throughout this poem, is qing, q-i-n-g. Um, and so potentially there's a kind of 
there's a kind of half homophony there. There's 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 a, a kind of um, there's a suggestion that it's implied that it's her. I really like that interpretation because this whole dream is kind of uh, provoked by her um, by her ushering uh, Jabao Yu into her room, and so in, in a sense. You know, mm-hmm. when we say love was her, her sea, her sky, Qingtian, yeah. Qinghai, or as you're saying, Qintian, Qinghai. In a sense, like this whole this whole universe is her. She's yeah. like the host in a certain way. You know, she was yeah. the one who leaded him in in the beginning of the dream, even. Uh, and and she's she she returns at the end in, in a very important moment. Yeah, it, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because the first line in Chinese is, yeah, as you say, Qintian, Qinghai. Which means literally translated as something like love sky, love sea, like dream or fantasy, love body. But mm-hmm. I mean, you can kind of understand it as, you know, it, it, as, as Hawke says, love was her sky, her, her sea, her sky. Those final three characters dreaming in the body of Qing, we can almost, yeah, understand this as almost, uh, as you suggested, but this is a this world that we're in is almost somehow partly her uh, kind of creation um, or is about her to some degree. But it's a rather grim note to, to end the, the register on. For sure, yeah. I, I mean, all, all these poems are, if not what I say before Macabre, that, that's a little too strong. Maybe unreal or surreal or uh, uncanny, maybe. Uncanny and almost um, lifeless. Because it is forecasting the future. When you enter into this, like, the realm of the infinite, yeah, it's like like individual lives become weirdly objectified. You know, more dust, you know, to be collected. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so on that note, uh, they do leave this this bureau or this department um, of the ill-fated uh, souls, and suddenly again it, it returns to the the sensuousness ordinarily characteristic of this uh, fantasy land, right? And so we have the same experience where Bao Yu is introduced to delicious tea. Oh, no, actually, before that, he's introduced to a kind of perfume, right? A, a kind of essence. In the Hawks translation, it's like the essence of all flowers or something like that. And this is when he meets the, um, all the other fairies um, who are going to perform the, the dream of golden days, uh, the Hong Ol Monk, for him. There's another echo of the... Um, the point that we talked about earlier about dirt and cleanliness. So disenchantment brings him out to meet the other fairies and they're all rather disappointed to see him. <laughs> um, so, I mean, there's, there's a quote here from one of the, from the Hawks translation. So this is your honored guest. What do you mean by making us hurry out to meet him? You told us that today at this very hour, the dream soul of our darling Crimson Pearl was coming to play with us. And we've been waiting, I don't know how long for her arrival. And now, instead, you have brought this disgusting creature to pollute our pure maidenly precincts. What's the idea? And, and so there's an expressly stated, I guess, distinction between the cleanliness and purity of the fairy world and the dirt of the um, human world. But again, also, it's sort of suggested that all of these fairies are female and Bayou is male. And so, again, it's his obsession with men are dirty and filthy and women are clean and pure coming through again. Definitely. Yeah, that, that's, it, that seems, again, psychologically significant in, in various ways. And he seems at this moment almost embarrassed by his, um, his dirtiness, his mud essence, or clay essence, or yeah. what, what have you. But anyway, Disenchantment manages to sort of smooth it over with them. Um, 
and, and, and mollify them somewhat. And, and they were expecting they were expecting um, Dayu essentially. They're expecting um, Crimson Pearl, which, which yes, is what exactly. he uh, you know they weren't expecting Baoyu, but his like his product, his um, his creation in a way. And so you, you can kind of think of him as yeah. the dirt that uh, that nurtures the the plant, in addition to being the gardener, as it were. Yeah. That's a really interesting point. So it's kind of a, again, it's it's a mixed metaphor, but it, I think it actually adds yeah. to it a little bit. Yeah. So so um, there are several things that um, several products you might say that that um, Bayou encounters in the fairy world um, that I think are worth mentioning. There's a perfume, there is a tea, and there is a wine, mm-hmm. right? And they're interesting because they're these like mythical substances, but they're also, I guess, kind of interesting because it's another opportunity to look at the way that Hawks chooses to translate them because the way that he does so, I think is rather singular, kind of quite an interesting approach. So the first of them is, is a perfume and it's the kind of perfume that you expect to encounter in a, a dream world occupied by fairies and the like. Um, so it says, he became aware of a faint, subtle sense, the source of which he was quite unable to identify, and about which he felt impelled to question this enchantment. How could he possibly know what it was, said this enchantment, with a somewhat scornful smile, since this perfume is not to be found anywhere in the immortal world. It is made from the essences of rare plants found on famous mountains and other places of great natural beauty. Culled when they're new-grown and blended with gums from the pearl-laden trees that grow in the jeweled groves of paradise. It is called Belle Soufane. So it's a French name that um, Hawks has given it. And the, the translation is sort of slightly indistinct, um, but Belle is um, both uh, beauty or beautiful, and Soufane is, uh, is from the verb to fade, essentially, Soufane. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's... it's um, the perfume is called Beauty Fades, which is an interesting, um, I, I sort of rather like that as an idea, as a name for it, but it's completely unrelated to the Chinese name. Um, I'm looking here, it's, uh, yeah, do you, do you have it? Yeah, so the Chinese name is Chun, Chun Fang Sui. Um, yeah. Yeah. So Chun meaning to gather together. Fang, we will come back to in a minute, <laughs> and Sui is something like essence. Mm-hmm. So it's the essence of gathered together, Fang, and fang is uh, it's a slightly complex word, but it means um, something that is fragrant, but also kind of beautiful, and it strongly implies kind of goodness. Uh, but it's a it's a character which is associated with plants, flowers, that kind of thing. So things that are floral, fragrant, and beautiful, essentially, the essence of them gathered together. So yeah, the Chinese name has nothing to do with the the translation that Hawks has given it, but I think it is quite a good one because actually that Chinese English translation that I've just come up with on the fly there is, I mean, just unbelievably funky and doesn't really capture the spirit of it at all. Right. I mean, I'm looking now in, in uh, I'm currently in Handian. They're saying Chunfang is like, like uh, all sorts of beautiful, fragrant, uh, flowers and plants, right? So it's not just flowers, but my sense is that you have this, um, if I were to translate it, I'd be like, it's, you know, the essence of infinite flowers or something, or like, it's like all the flowers, you get all the good parts of them and you bring them all together and you get this like yeah. really miraculous scent. 
And so I would relate yes. this back to this kind of um, overflowing of um, sensuous material, a kind of comprehensive, not just one flower, but all the flowers brought together in, in one yeah. combined form or something which i, I think again yeah. is maybe related to the environment this is lady chin's room and she really did try in her own mortal capacity she tried to like bring all the symbols all the the fragrances together to create this um sensuous room which is again a, a reflection of her of her sensuous nature which ultimately is going to be mm-hmm. uh her downfall to the extent that you know downfall. she She's yeah. so sensuous. She even, um, within the, the realm of her love, she includes things and in, in people that shouldn't be included, up to including her own, um, mm-hmm. uh, her, her father-in-law, right? Father-in-law. Um, yeah. So that's the ultimate, like, you're not supposed to, of the set of all, um, the set of all sets, you're not supposed to include that particular member. And so that's kind of the, that's how I, I would give the, yeah. the philosophical twist to this. You know, this is the, uh, the downfalls of <laughs> infinity, of, of comprehensiveness. Ah, uh, I see, I see. Uh, so, so then the second thing we come across is, uh, is a T, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, again, it's, it, it's this rather like ludicrous, fantastic T. Yeah, it's great. So Disenchantment <laughs> tells him, the leaves are picked in the paradise of the full-blown flower on the mountain of spring awakening. It is infused in water collected from the dew that lies on fairy flowers and leaves. The name is Maiden's Tears, which uh, again is, is, is a good name, but, it, but seems to bear no resemblance to the, um, to the Chinese name. You know what it is? Oftentimes when Hawks, when he goes off on one of his like unexpected translations, sometimes he's really engaging with the commentary tradition. And there seems to be okay. um, a longstanding tradition of, like, literally, I, I have it open here. So it's Chen Hong Yi Ku, and I'm like, a, a thousand red, one cave. I, like, it's a little mysterious, yeah. right? Um, but yeah. in the commentarial tradition, this Ku um, first tone is to be related to Ku uh, as in crying, right? Yeah. And so here, Hawks has, I think, Maiden's Tears. And so... Again, a thousand tears, that kind of sounds like the kind of thing that maybe it's not literally a thousand. It's like a thousand as in like a very large amount of tears. Maybe that's what you do an entire exactly, mortal yeah. lifetime. So maybe these are Lindayu's yeah. mortal tears. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's a good, that is a, I think, I think you're right. I think that his translations of these things are not in any way intended to be literal so much as capturing something of the spirit or nature of the thing. And so, yeah, he's relying heavily on a commentarial tradition. I think this particular um, innovation was suggested by, um, we mentioned uh, Jurian Jai in a previous... Oh, yeah, one of the one of the main commentators, yeah. He was maybe the first person to um, to recognize this particular... Again, it's another a play on homophony. It's, it's not always clear whether this is over-interpretation sometimes. This is where it gets kind of fun, but also you sometimes wonder, you know... What, what can I trust? Who can I, who can, who can I rely on? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and then, yeah. So the, then the third one is um, the, the wine that they drink. Uh, so again, it's, it's, it's the same. So in the, in the Hawks, it says, this wine, said disenchantment, is made from the petals of hundreds of kinds of flowers and extracts from thousands of different sorts of trees. These are blended and fermented with Kylin's marrow and Phoenix milk. Hence its name, Lacrimae rerum. So Kylin or Keelin there, I think, is, is as in Chilean, the 
uh, mythical Chinese beast. And so, yeah, so, so, so again, it's, it's almost like ludicrously fantastic as a, as an item. It's, it's hundreds of flowers and thousands of trees all mixed up with these substances from two mythical creatures that, that no one has ever seen. Um, and then, and then distilled or brewed into wine. And again, the, the, the name Lacrimae Rerum is, uh, is Hawks going back to, to Latin again. It's kind of an interesting one because, um, Again, I, I, I looked at the Chinese. The, the Chinese name here is uh, Wan Yen Tongbei. Wan being 10,000. Um, yen, I think, being it's supposed to be like beautiful or uh, sensuous. And then Tongbei means same cup. So in the same cup. Mm -hmm. So the 10,000 beautiful things in the same cup. Okay. And Hawks here is saying Lacrimae Rerum, which I mean, uh, I, I'm no expert in Latin, but Lacrimae is from. Is, is to do with tears, crying, and rerum is to do with uh, things. So it's something like the tears of things or tears from things. And this actually seems to be uh, a reference to something in the Western literary canon. There is a the epic poem, the, the Aeneid, which is by the, the Roman poet Virgil, which is kind of a foundational myth of the Roman state um, based around the central character Aeneas. In that there is a section in which Aeneas looks at uh, a mural of the, the Trojan Wars. So the wars where the ancient Greeks went to war with Troy, you know, the wooden horse, all of that kind of thing. And this term comes from that. So there's the line, sunt lacrimarum, it mentum mortalia tanguin. So there are tears of things or tears for things and mortal things touch the mind, basically. So. This one more than more than the others genuinely baffled me because I didn't, I just couldn't quite understand how he got to something so far removed from from the kind of subject matter and the meaning. But again, it's a very good name for a kind of fantastic um, wine that can be found in the land of illusion, filled with fairies. You know, this is this amazing wine brewed from mythical beasts, and it's called the Tears of Things. Um, <laughs> I did not have an answer to that. This chapter yeah. was so um, daunting, really, to make it through that mm. I think I just saw, like, okay, we got some nice wine. I got, <laughs> yeah. I got, I, I got like, 10 more uh, songs to work through. But, yeah, I mean, it really is a rich chapter. You know, you, you could do a whole podcast mm. on this chapter, maybe. I think we're, we're kind of just in our capacities here. We're, we're just giving a, a taste. We're merely sipping the wine, and we're not fully uh, experiencing it just yet. Mm. So how about we... We are coming to the next major section of, of technically poetry, although it's, it's labeled as songs yeah. here. There's a, a brief description of the songs. Should we go through that or should we, what do you think? Should we jump right into a few of them? I'm happy to jump right in if you like. They talk about how these are celestial songs and they also make a point that you really should read along to them. You can't simply listen to them. So maybe they're, they're sung in, in the same way that, you know, if you really want to enjoy Beijing opera, you, you kind of have to read along or it's going to be hard unless you're steeped in that tradition. Yeah. And it's actually, I guess it's kind of just as an aside worth noting that because Chinese, the spoken forms of Chinese generally are, are tonal. So, you know, that the tone in which you pronounce different characters conveys and like encodes the meaning. So the tone and the meaning are inseparable. And obviously, the thing about singing is that you, the words that you sing follow the, the melody of the song. And what that does is it 
detaches the sound of the character from the tone which conveys the meaning. And so what that means is when you're singing in Chinese, sometimes the meaning can be lost in a way that perhaps it wouldn't be in a non-tonal language. And I guess for that reason, wanting to read along with the songs is not merely, it's almost that there's like a, there's like a, a more mundane thing, which is just as a practical consideration, it's important for, for his understanding, you know? Definitely, definitely. And so jumping right into this, I'm going to propose that we, uh, in the interest of time, I think we could focus on the intro song, the first song, which is dedicated again to Lin Dayu and Shri Chai, and maybe the, the, the last song dedicated to Lady Chin, Chin Shi, and also maybe the outro song, which is already a, a fair amount of material, because in, in addition, it's important to talk about what happens after all this. So we're going to kind of like maybe pick up the pace a little bit, but also just go through some of the, the more uh, philosophically um, substantial content, I think. If we move along to the uh, the intro song, maybe I'll, I'll read the, the, Hawks, the Hawks translation, and then we can mm-hmm. talk about some, uh, some of the choices he makes that I think actually um, obscures, uh, again, what's happening in the original text. And, and so, um, so the, the Hawks reads, uh, Prelude, A Dream of Golden Days. You know, when first the world from chaos rose, tell me, how did love begin? The wind and moonlight first did love compose. Now we'll be gone, and quite cast down, in low estate. I would my foolish heart expose, and so perform this dream of golden days, and all my grief for my lost love disclose. My interpretation here is that, again, we, we have, this is the author's voice emerging again. Uh, he's kind of explaining what he's doing with this work, not only with his song, but with his whole novel, right? And that's why the the name of the novel appears again in the first line where what Hawks has is A Dream of Golden Days. Uh, Hong Lo Meng. Yeah. I want to emphasize that what Hawks has as, tell me, how did love begin? What he has for here for love is is Qing, again. The yeah. planted there is, is Zhong. And so it's against an agricultural metaphor. And so for me, it, it really, again... Uh, conjures the image of the stone if not planting then cultivating the 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 crimson flower yeah how was how yeah exactly how was love planted how was love grown exactly rather than how did it begin in the as in the the literal english text here that's important i think because i I really think this is one of the main questions of this novel like what is the cosmological significance of of love and and i would say also of aesthetics and of uh, of art maybe as well right Mm -hmm. and so again he he attributes it to the wind and the moonlight uh hawks translates literally which is I, i think correct but there's also it's important to recognize that we have this the notion of feng yue as a feng wind and and moonlight yue as uh, a set metaphor for romance yeah absolutely and and if you remember in the first chapter one of the five names of the novel is feng yue bao jian i think so yes. uh, a jeweled mirror reflecting feng yue reflecting romantic affairs yeah definitely right and so what Hawks has is, um, did love compose? A more literal translation would be maybe, did love uh, cultivate? Because it's uh, the word is, is nong, as in like uh, like agricultural or nongtun. It's again, it's it's the same kind of natural, uh, organic metaphor. The Hawks is, is rendering properly, but he's making it more abstract, I think. And it's kind of important to, to think about the original there. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's a question, of, again, I want to think more about why, you know, 
why would you refer to romance as wind and moonlight? How, how do you mm. respond to that? Well, I guess the moonlight point is, I suppose, rather rather obvious because it's always been a kind of clear mm -hmm. clear symbolic significance in in, in romance. Um, and I mean, it kind of goes back to, I think it's in the first chapter as well, Jayu Tsun, when he when he sees the servant girl in the courtyard gathering flowers and they share this moment, which is a, a kind of love at first sight type moment. Um, and he falls into a kind of reverie of, you know, being a young man in love. The poetry that he writes and the way that he understands his feelings is by reference to the moon. Yeah, he's got the, the Ren Jian Wan Xing Yang Tou Kan. On yeah. Earth, 10,000 heads look up and gaze. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So moon, the moonlight itself is romantic for him, but also he somehow personifies the woman he loves with the moon itself. Yeah, that's a very that's a memorable moment, and and so that, that's kind of the that, that's the intro to these um to these set of songs. These ones are are less uncanny, a, a little bit less like Lynchian than yeah. um what we had before with the the painting and the um and the accompanying poem, right? But there's again, there still is a lot of um, symbolism. Um, yeah, these ones are just um, yeah, rather more beautiful romantic poetry, you know. Yeah, so we can probably get through them a little more quickly as well. I think. Do you want to try your hand at reading the the first song? Yeah. So so the the first one is uh, is called the mistaken marriage, and uh, I think that's kind of interesting because the Chinese title is Zhongshen Wu, mm -hmm. which uh, Zhongshen means literally end body, but it really means kind of at the end of your life uh, or the span of your life. Yeah, your, and your entire life. Wu is like a, yeah, yeah uh, Wu is like a mistake. Mm -hmm. So Hawks translates it as a mistaken marriage, but but really it's this is the mistaken the mistaken or misspent life mm -hmm. almost. You know, so it's 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 even more severe, I suppose. Anyway, the poem reads, "Let others all." Commend the marriage rites of gold and jade. I still recall the bond of old by stone and flower made. And while my vacant eyes behold, crystalline shows, snows rather, of beauty pure and cold, from my mind cannot be banished. That fairy wood forlorn that from the world has vanished. How true I find that every good some imperfection holds. Even a wife so courteous and so kind, no comfort brings to my affected mind. And so, yeah, I, I just, um, there's definitely a, a, a tragic or forlorn tone to the poem, but it's not, um, you're right, it's not, it's not uncanny, it's not grim in the same way as the, as the shorter quatrains we encountered earlier. Yeah, it's, it's, maybe it's more human, it's, it's more uh, embodied, we have a clear voice, it's, it's fairly moving, it's clearly, I, I think, from the perspective of the author, and by implication, uh, Jabao Yu. Where it's again, it's looking back at a life, a critically mistaken, if not decision, because it's not clear that he really has the decision uh, as to to whom to marry, but uh, as a, a kind of um, an unfortunate fate for all involved, right? And so the the marriage yeah. rites of gold and jade are, are clearly um, gold is again we saw this before is signifying Bao Chai, and jade is of course mm -hmm. um, Bao Yu. Okay. Um, Jia Yu is remembering, you know, the the deeper bond. So the marriage rights is not exactly the original. Um, yeah, it's actually the original is, is a reference to fate. Yeah, all say that gold and jade 
are well matched or predestined maybe yeah 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 because the UN has this, this implication of fate. Yeah. But uh, the, the bond in question, the bond of old by stone and flower, that's more obvious, right? The stone is is, yeah. is value in his capacity as a stone, you know? And flower yeah. is, is Dayu in her capacity as a flower. And so it's kind of, yeah. there's also a cool a metaphysics going on here where like... Well, the, the thing is actually, what's interesting is that Hawks uses the word flower, but actually... The original is mu, wood, tree, which is clearly a reference to her surname, Lin, which is forest. And we see that later in what Hawks translates as fairy wood, right? So if you get a lot of trees yeah. together, you get a wood. But if you get two trees yeah. together, we have the character for Lin again. And the, the, the term for bond is meng, uh, which is a really old term. It's more than just a bond. It's like a deep... I think the original meng were actually blood covenants. This yeah. dates back to even the, the Western Joe period, a, a blood bond, basically, right? Yeah. And that's, and if we recall, you know, the Crimson Pearl, she's going to be, her tears, you know, at some point referred to as tears of blood, you know, that's how strong they are. Uh, yeah. And actually we'll see in, in another one of the poems, I'm, I'm not sure if we're going to read it now, but uh, the character we use for tears is uh, Leiju, uh, which is, it's, it's the same kind of, the same character for pearl like pearls of um like literally like tear pearls right but it's the same oh, uh as in as in jangju for you know crimson pearl for um daiyu's original name if that makes sense and another thing i kind of wanted to just emphasize in this poem was again this idea that um if we look at the the hawks translation you know how true i find that every good some imperfection holds which again uh, reminds me of um mm. the idea of the stone being uh, the result his freedom and his capacity for love being the result of, of Nuwa's imperfect count. Uh, but also the uh, this notion of um, maybe an, an aesthetics of, you know, perfection as imperfection. The imperfection, mm -hmm. maybe even the imperfect. We will recall that the chapter began with um, a Jabaoyu and Lin Dayu uh, fighting, squabbling a little bit. And, and so that the very fact that they're squabbling and, and that actually these, these kinds of small um, disagreements were so characteristic of their relationship is again reflection of a kind of imperfection but um but one that uh, has maybe a deep a deeper significance something like that yeah I, no that, that i think is right um i'm just uh going back over some of the text of this poem because it is you know in the chinese it's particularly good uh in a way that is definitely difficult to carry over into the into the english as we mentioned in that first the first um, two lines, there's a contrast between, as you say, the marriage of gold and jade, i.e. the marriage of Jia Baoyu and Xue uh, Baochai, and by contrast, his previous bond with Lin Daoyu. And this is again mirrored in, this, in the second pair of lines, in the second little couplet there, where he describes facing Hawks uses the, the the term crystalline snows of beauty, pure and cold, and and yeah, that's kind of the suggestion is that there's radiant, beautiful snow, I guess, sort of on the mountain before you, something along those lines. But he describes being Kong, which is kind of hollow, empty, looking upon it. So he stands before what he recognizes to be objectively a um, a very beautiful, wondrous sight but is, is empty inside. And then, yeah, exactly, the following one says that he, to the end, cannot forget Lin Daiyu, the, the woman he eventually will not marry. 
But what's interesting about it is that he describes her as a kind of fairy from another world. So the phrase is shi wai, which is literally world outside, so outside of our world. Uh, and then xian shu, a kind of spirit or nymph girl, the ji mo lin, the lonely lin. And I think, yeah, exactly. It's just tying back to the the, the, the crimson pearl um, being herself, Definitely. not entirely of this world. It is a, maybe one of the better poems, one of the more moving ones. This idea of the uh, the lustrous snow, because it's basically describing the snow, which again represents yeah. uh, Shri Baochai in her surname being Shri as in snow, uh, or homophonous with, with snow. Yeah. Uh, and so the luster, the, the, the character is Ing, which is usually uh, used to describe jades. And so it's showing that even though um, Shri Baochai doesn't have a jade in her name, like she doesn't exactly share that connection that we see between Lin Dayu and Jia Baoyu, but she still is really close. You know, she's really close to having that kind of, um, that Jade-like perfection or like near perfection that is characteristic mm-hmm. of Jade. Or maybe maybe she's too perfect and that's why she's not. There's different ways yeah. to uh, to kind of um, unravel the, <laughs> uh, what I want to call yeah. like the metaphysics of, of like stones and, and so on. Chapters like this are probably part of the reason why this is such a recognized piece of literature in China you know, being full of very versatile, different forms of poetry created to an extremely high standard of, of artistry and capturing, uh, yeah, a really um, impressive sort of spectrum of, of, of emotions and feelings, um, I think is, is, is quite an incredible thing for a single writer to have done. And I think it's sort of part of the reason why it's so highly regarded and kind of beloved as a, as a novel. Not just that the story's good, but there's this real, like, almost like virtuoso type quality to some of the. That, that's a really good point. Some of the poetry that he includes in there. We would have to delve deeper into kind of this particular tradition of literature to see the extent to which this really does um, set itself apart from other great novels and um, literary short stories and poetry that, that's come before it. It does seem that the ability to combine. Uh, it's hard to imagine a modern author being able to successfully um, combine poetry and prose and uh, story development and, and, and character development in this way. I could imagine one or yeah. one or another element um, suffering. And so maybe maybe that's a sign of uh, you know the, yeah. the culture we live in where we weren't, you know, there's a lot of poetry in this in this novel. Uh, and, and a lot of it is fairly good. I think, and <clears throat> Tao Shishin's capacity to um, to reproduce quality poetry within a novel form is maybe a reflection of living in a culture where poetry is more central. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's one where um, poetry is regarded, I guess, as probably the certainly one of the highest art forms, and something that anyone who considered themselves to be properly cultured would at least be broadly competent yeah. in, if not greater, you know? And that's kind of fascinating because it's so it's so absent from, I guess, a culture like contemporary Western culture. Of course there is poetry and of course there is music, <laughs> but most people couldn't really string a few lines together if you asked them. Uh, no, or if they did, it would be more in a stream of consciousness uh, style. Yeah. And so I'm like the last person yeah. to like recommend, you know, uh, reject modernity, embrace tradition, 
which is like a, a, <laughs> a cliche as it should be. But I, I do yeah. wonder whether yeah. um, whether there's something here that we've lost that we could maybe try to reform maybe in a new, maybe in a digital yeah. capacity. I, I was joking online that what we need now is like a, like we need video games that teach you poetry. We need like, uh, <laughs> you know, you, yeah. you make it on the, on the spot and the, the video games algorithm tests, it writes you it. know, it's your use of rhyme and imagery. Yeah. That would be, that's the way forward. I think. That's, that's the, the synthesis of, tradition and modernity or something okay gonna make it happen okay so um do it <laughs> and so it's been fun next time we're gonna finish um uh, chapter five in the meantime thanks for listening to another episode of rereading the stone 